Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Actung, actung, and welcome to another edition of our Christmas readings. And this is a continuation of the one I was doing the other day from Anthony Cottrell, the war correspondent. And in the first bit, it was about him landing on D-Day and his D-Day experiences of the 6th of June, 1944. And now this is the following day and the following few days in those first days of D plus one, two, three. So we're rejoining the action on Wednesday the 7th of June and this is his kind of sort of written up diary recording of his experiences. So, Wednesday the 7th of June. The problem now was to catch up with and join the Armoured Brigade. This is the 8th Armoured Brigade incidentally. I hopped on an ammunition lorry which took me no more than a few hundred yards before turning off into a field in which was encamped some sort of rear echelon of the Armoured Brigade. My next venture was rather more profitable. I got on the back of an RAF lorry, carrying men on their way to service planes as soon as strips had been put down on which they could land. They had come straight from the beach and were still virginally surprised by everything they saw. Look, there's a donkey over in that field, said one of them. Wonder they haven't eaten it. We passed a soldier leaning domestically in his shirt sleeves from the upper window of the house. Looks at home, don't he, said one man. Going to the dance tonight, he shouted to the soldier. No fucking dance here, shouted the soldier. We were in a long procession of traffic, passing along a hedgeless road with some sort of green crops on either side. We advanced cautiously and presently stopped. There was a constant rumble of gunfire ahead of us. We regarded the surrounding countryside with marked suspicion, expecting shots to ring out at any time. In the field near where our lorry had stopped, there were three dead Germans. The RAF men were seeing this for the first time and their reactions were mixed. Some got to look out. Hope you all come back, said one non-looker. The first German was a big, lumpy youth who had been killed by something which had blown away part of his face. He lay there with a grenade, which he had been about to throw, just fallen out of his hand. A few yards away, two more were lying face down. One of them had had the side of his body blown away. Their kit had been looted and the remainder of their belongings lay scattered about them. Buggers are well clothed, say what you like, said one of the RAF men. There were two more lying in the young crops. One had had his head blown in, and his face had been crushed into his upturned helmet as though someone had systematically kicked it into pulp. 
The fifth man had been pepper-potted with bullets and lay with his head in a cluster of wild flowers. Their faces were all a mixture of death house grey and fruit juice purple. The RAF men were sickened by the cold and final brutality of what they saw. A few minutes before, they had been gaily, adventurously going off to war. The landing, which no doubt they had envisaged for months as unlimited carnage, had temporarily seemed comfortably romantic and pleasantly safe, though spiced with a satisfying sense of potential danger. The bodies made them realise that they hadn't seen anything yet. Photograph there, you know. Probably of his mother, said one man. Well, it's the only way to win a war, isn't it? Killing him, said another. It's like a piece of raw meat said a third man, staring at the most pulped of the bodies. What do you think did it? Reckon someone bashed his head in with a rifle. See that photograph of his wife there? The procession showed signs of moving on, and we hurried back into the lorry. Of course we knew nothing about the general progress of the beachhead, and everyone was asking everyone else if they knew any news. The most persistent, and at that point inaccurate, rumour was that there had been a landing at Marseille. Our progress was a very halting affair, about every hundred yards there was a long wait. We finally arrived at the small village of Crepon. The streets were in a state of total traffic jam. I recognised some of the assault infantry from the LSI, but nowhere could I find any vehicle with the fox's head against a red and yellow background, which was the sign of the 8th Armoured Brigade. I decided to carry on with the RAF lorry and trust a chance. We turned to the left and started going backwards, then curved round and presently stopped in the middle of a big space of open land, dotted with anti-air landing poles. A squadron of tanks of the mine-clearing flail type were scattered over the ground, and thinking they were at least in the same line of business as the 8th Armour Brigade, I took my sleeping roll off the RAF lorry and introduced myself. The major in command of the squadron had been slightly wounded and was trying, with much gallantry, but not much success, to pretend that he hadn't been. The second-in-command told me what had been going on. These flail tanks are fitted with revolving chains and are used to clear minefields. After coming in on the initial assault, they had been hurried up to Croy to be used as ordinary tanks in an anticipated counter-attack by tigers. But there had been no need for them to go into action, and they had lingered on this stretch of open ground. At first light this morning, when they were changing from the close box formation used by tanks at night to the open position which is safer in daytime, they were opened upon by a German 100mm infantry gun. Though the crews were mostly dismounted, they had knocked out the gun with three shots in about two minutes. Five people had been wounded. They immediately improvised a party of three flail tanks, two flame-throwing crocodiles and fifteen gunners acting as infantry to investigate the position. The two crocodiles squirted a pillbox on the left of the guns in flame and without much trouble they bagged about a hundred Germans in a trench behind. They also found an 88mm gun and four 75mm guns, which hadn't opened up at all. This particular piece of country had been certified as clear by the spearhead infantry, but of course everyone makes mistakes. We were standing just by a small copse in which a medical aid post had been established. The doctor came out to say that one of the Germans whom he was treating had said that there was a wounded Englishman in a shot-up truck some way down the road. The German also said that there were another 20 of his colleagues waiting to be mopped up. Two German prisoners came out of the cottage where they had been having their wounds dressed. One was very young and ingratiating. He had an air of total lack of political conviction or interest. He was an undefendable scallywag in any language. He had a wound in his arm. The other man was an officer, a surly, obstinate, stocky, red-headed man of about 30, with medals indicating that he had fought on the Eastern Front and in Africa. 
he didn't look anybody's friend. They were being looked after by a tall, lanky sergeant who was obviously much enjoying his baptism of action. He wore his overalls and black beret with cowboy rakishness and juggled his revolver about with menacing fatalness. Why take him to the beach? Why not do him in now? he asked with slightly self-conscious ferocity. He went on to talk about what he might well do on the way down to the beach, making bloodthirstily facetious remarks about saving petrol and coining the happy phrase that the only good German was a dead one. Two minutes later, he spoiled the effect by giving the prisoners each a cigarette and a piece of chocolate. Another more seriously wounded German was brought out on a stretcher when the lorry appeared to take them back to the beach. The German prisoners helped to lift their comrade on board. He was in considerable pain, and the stretcher-bearers were by no means experts. He winced and moaned as they unsteadily lifted the stretcher and bumped him against the tailboard of the lorry. At that moment, a medical orderly came running out and shouted, "'Chuck it, Charlie, we need the stretchers!' The poor devil had to be taken off the rudimentary comfort of the stretcher and stretched onto the floor of the truck. However, the lorry driver came round and unrolled his own palliasse for the German to lie on, a gesture which was made more generous by the blood-soaked condition of the German. The latter was in considerable pain, accentuated by the fact wherein transferring him from the stretcher they had turned him over the wrong way. He was slowly and painfully turned over again. A shot rang out near us. "'There he is again, that bloody sniper,' said the sergeant. "'It was now 10.30pm, so as soon as the lorry had gone, "'I made ready to settle down for the night with the flail tanks, "'which on the approach of darkness came together in a soap-box formation "'with their soft-skinned supplies vehicles sheltered inside. "'They want a lot of sleep. "'It took them hours to settle down for the night. "'By the time they had manoeuvred their nine tanks into a triangular formation, "'had picked the guard, held an administrative conference, "'had settled down for the night,' the air raid started over the beachhead. Noise from there was accentuated by a troop of bofers sighted a hundred yards from us. I pitched my sleeping bag in the dusk under the tailboard of one of the two soft-skinned two-ton lorries in the middle of the blockade. The sergeant major was sleeping on the tailboard above me. He had a strangely persistent tenor snore. The newly arrived airfield construction group kept shouting at each other all through the night. Of course it was reassuring to hear them so anxious to build their airfield, but I couldn't help feeling that perhaps tomorrow would do. Added to all this, the guards kept changing rather argumentatively, so sleep was rather patchy, and ended altogether with a stand-to at 5am. Thursday, the 8th of June. At 5.30am, the tanks had to burst out from their harbour, as I believe the term is, because daylight had set in again. About 6am, the neighbouring Akak opened up on a solitary aircraft. We could see the black puffs tailing it. It was followed by several others and hundreds more black puffs with corresponding noise. I ate some chocolate and sweets from my 24-hour ration pack for breakfast. The tanks moved off at 6.30am. I sat in the back of one of the three tunners. Our progress was marked by a thick cloud of yellow dust blown off the winding trail of road by the tanks. There were very few signs of battle, except when an occasional group of buildings had been felled. Telegraph wires tended to be down. We passed little knots of dead bodies, sometimes a single one, more often in twos and threes. I don't mind seeing these German buggers, but it's seeing one of our own unburied that I don't like, said someone in the truck. But in fact, the bodies were usually German ones. The advancing English had naturally used what little time they had to bury their own comrades first. The bodies had usually been looted, with the valueless contents of their pockets strewn around them. This wasn't always so. It just happened to be so in this particular area. 
Our column was stopped by a tank which got caught on a corner. Another tank knocked over a telegraph pole, and the tank coming just behind us knocked a bit off the corner of a house. Local inhabitants watched our passage through the narrow lane by their houses with horrified apprehension. One lady came out to watch us in her dressing gown. This seemed rather eccentric attire, until I realised that it was only 7am. During one of the waits, another tank came up a side road, commanded by a man I'd met on the steamer coming over. He was also trying to reach the 8th Armoured Brigade, so I transferred my kit and climbed on board, sitting up behind the turret among a miscellany of water cans, tins, compo boxes and a number 18 wireless set. It was my first ride on a tank. No doubt about it, this form of progress has its compensations, like being king. Everyone stares impressed. Many of them wave. The essential belligerence of a tank makes its every journey a stirring affair. It may only be going to collect the mail, but it always looks as if it's being thrown in to stem a tide or launch a spearhead. After about two minutes steady progress, we were stopped by a line of traffic. Having crushed a hedge, pushed a lorry a little to one side and ruined a section of the road, we marked our way round the obstacle and got moving again. We made our way with many uncertain detours to brigade headquarters. This was in a newly ruined field of young crops. Tanks and other vehicles were on three sides of a rectangle along hedges. I found Lance Corporal Cook and his tank, which I had been supposed to join on the evening of D-Day. They hadn't got ashore until late the following day. Cook was a dark, vivacious, always smiling young man with a very conspicuous trait of self-reliance. He loaded my kit onto the back of the hull with the others and showed me into the co-driver's seat where I'd be riding. He told me to keep my head down when we moved, as many had been blown off by enemy snipers. I had a fairly comfortable cushioned seat like the high stools at a cocktail bar. It could be raised and lowered like a barber's chair. Immediately in front of me there was a .30-inch Browning machine gun. On my right there was a wireless set. On my left sat the driver. We were separated by a big crank casing. You enter the tank through a very heavy metal trap door. If you feel either safe or bold, you ride along with your head sticking up out of the tank. Or probably you ride with it sticking up just far enough to let you see what's going on. Alternatively, you can close the trap door and observe matters through a periscope, which affords a pretty fair but not entirely satisfactory field of vision. I had arrived just in time because presently came the order to move. OK, start up, Cherry, said Cook to the driver, a young man who was so named presumably because of his very red cheeks. The noise of starting up was a cross between a ship's engine and, and an aircraft. OK, move forward slowly. Right, steady now. Hold it. OK, take her away, kid, said Cook, who, as tank commander, stood looking out of the turret, giving orders through his microphone into the earphones which we all wore. Have you got one up the spout? he asked. I fed the belt of ammunition, which lay stored in a tin box at my feet, into the browning. I resolved to borrow at the earliest possible moment some form of goggles to cope with the cloud of dust thrown up by the vehicles in front. We rumbled along for about half an hour. It was by no means very uncomfortable. The noise quickly faded in one's consciousness and there was no particular bumping about or vibration. We turned up into a field already signposted as the brigade. We were tic-tacked by a captain into a corner at the far end. We stopped under a tree and a shower of blossom fell into my lap. Cook brought out a big tin of orange juice given by the American crew of the ship in which they'd crossed. It went down very well. Could do with that fig juice we gave him, said Cherry. That woman needed it as much as we did, said Cook self-righteously. They discussed the dead Germans who they'd seen along the route. War's a dirty business, said one. They'd all been years in the army without appreciating this elementary fact. 
It was nothing like your first view of mangled corpses to set you thinking. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Any idea where we are, Cookie? Asked Hog. Yes, I'll give you a map reference. Yeah, 876 Seven seven eight. Cook was out of the tank and speculation arose as to the chances of him being sniped. Someone said there would be one or two things on the body which might come in handy, particularly his watch. I'll haunt you forever if you pinch my watch, said Cook. With my dying breath, I'm going to spit on my cigarettes, eat my money, tear up my watch. You won't get nothing. I should have mentioned earlier that the reason for sending Cook on the patrol was that he spoke French. How about a brew-up? How about a dabble? asked Cook. Want me to get out and be sniped at, I suppose, said Cherry. Man, there's no bloody snipers. I've had my head out about the last half hour, said Cook. We got out and made tea. We watched some SP guns firing from the edge of a pub about 300 yards behind us. I should add that this firing had been a constant feature of the afternoon. It's surprising how quickly you get used to detonations in your ears. The guns were at intervals along the copse of about, I should say, 50 yards. The crew talked on about mail. They would like to be able to send some, even if they couldn't receive it. Of course, so far, there was no opportunity to do either. They disclosed the whereabouts of the enemy and displayed remarkable ignorance of enemy potentials, and also of how much country was needed to destroy a panzer division. Then came the question of how we were doing on the other sectors, or, for that matter, on our own sector. A battered-looking corporal from the neighbouring tank said, It's always a bloody same. Right up in front, and don't know what the hell's happening. Some day the war will be over and we'll go on. Yeah, waiting for some sucker to turn up and tell us where to go, said someone. At 7pm, we were still there, unmoved. A lot of planes had gone overhead and a lot of guns had been fired in the neighbourhood. At the moment, there was an intensification of the firing. 
much of it near enough to produce a detonating shake in the tank. Perhaps that is a shade inaccurate. They didn't shake the tank, but they made the loose fittings jingle. Some detonated overhead. Others seemed to be directing a pressure and sound wave through the tank to the ground. We had a very good supper at 7.30pm. Stew and sultana pudding, tea and biscuits. There was great shelling going on nearly all the time. Then at 8.05pm we suddenly moved. But not very far. We went through a village and then turned off into a field where a lot of the brigades stocked in transport and some tanks were harboured for the night. Our tank came to a rest close into a hedge about three quarters of the way down the sloping field. The other hedges of the field were similarly lined with trucks and tanks. Kit was unhitched from the odd crannies where it was carried. Big camouflage nets were thrown over the tanks and a lean-to shelter was erected along one side of it. Some saplings were cut to support it. The more hygienically inclined had a rough wash. All round the field men were sitting in little groups, mostly brewing up tea or cooking a meal. The current tag when anyone got over-authoritative was "Gone. he hasn't even seen a dead jerry yet. There was a donkey in the field which made awful sounds as of human agony. Cook was eventually jeered into mounting the moak and riding it round in a circle with one of the local funny men, a Welsh boy called Freeman, running backwards in front of him and holding up a pin-up girl's picture in front of the moak's nose. "'What are you doing tonight? Going to the dance?' I heard someone say. "'No, invited to a whist drive. Cleared my mail special,' said the other man. There was a raid over the beach. The crazy fountains of Red Tracer looked very lovely against a romantically clear blue sky. I went with Cook to look at a German truck which had been knocked out in the middle of the field. There was a litter of hand grenades, odd-looking bottles, combs and personal kit on the ground about the lorry, which was half over on its side. It must have been about 11pm before we pulled out our sleeping rolls and retired under our lean-to for the night. There was a lot of alarming talk about moving at 5am. Friday, the 9th of June. But we didn't get up into pouring rain until 7.45am. We moved at 8am back to the same field as yesterday, where the guns were still firing. Emboldened possibly by our return, they started desultory shelling. Our troop commander was Lieutenant Smith, MF, a very charming but hard-bitten looking man in his thirties. He presently called all crews over to him and said that we were moving up with the guns to protect them. For this, we would be divided into two troops of two tanks each. Moving tactically. Remember you're moving tactically, so don't just swan about anywhere. I think there's time for a brew-up, but be ready to move any time. Have as little as possible off the tank. After breakfast and some rudimentary maintenance, we set off at 10am, ran several hundred yards and stopped. We were told that a panzer division was advancing up the road towards Bayeux. We were advancing down another road, vaguely converging on them, so that contact might be expected. The enemy was counterattacking, but the expected arrival of the 27th Armoured Division was supposed to crush this counterattack. At the moment, we were passing through an area heavily infested with snipers, who had already done very well at the expense of tank personnel who showed their heads. At least the rain had helped to lay the dust. There was no need to wear goggles. We went on about half a mile, and then stopped on the side of an unhedged road. A lot of infantry were lying in the soaking wet grass. There was a lot to be said for having a tank to work from. It may not be as waterproof as it looks. Rain comes pouring in through the most waterproof looking points. But it is many jumps ahead of lying in the grass. A mysteriously produced mug of tea was handed round for a mouthful. Gunfire opened up alarmingly near and a lot of aircraft flew overhead. Some of our own guns were operating in the next field. 
Presently, Cook was sent for by the captain and came back in a dramatic mood, having been told to take two men and reconnoitre an 88mm gun, which had been reported by local inhabitants. Cook was boyishly anxious to go. The rest of the crew maintained a rather more realistic attitude towards such goings-on. There was no enthusiasm to go looking for a German 88mm guns. But he took two of them, and they went off. While they were gone, the fourth man in the crew started brewing up some tea on a petrol cooker, as the crews of the two neighbouring tanks were doing. There was a lot of shooting going on in connection, I gathered, with clearing our staff line. The colonel conducting these operations, the CO of the field regiment attached to the 8th Armour Brigade, had his tank next to ours. He was bald and worldly, not unlike Nat Gubbins, though he looked more capable of writing a comic column. He stood leaning on his tank, studying his map and talking into his microphone. Why don't they engage them? What are we waiting for? he said plaintively. A message was given to him that three German 88mm guns were reported to be withdrawing south of Coulomb. Ask him how the devil he gets that information. I'm standing south of Coulomb myself, said the colonel indignantly. Who is Jay with? He's with friends from the north. Is that clear? Is he with one of the three figures or two figures? Three figures over. Thank you. A little later, I overheard a snatch of dialogue with considerable implications. They're Canadian tanks in there. In... They're Canadian tanks in there in the woods, sir. Stop the guns at once, said the colonel. I began reading Captain Blood by Raphael Sabatini, which I'd found in the tank. A voice over the radio set said, Our tanks are engaging enemy tanks half a mile southwest of Secaville. Figures 9274. Hello, I'm very glad to hear your voice again. Are you all right? Yes, the 30 German tanks are southwest of Secaville. I'm watching them now. Grand, give me a running commentary if you can. Our people don't know what's happening, said the colonel, who was talking presumably to one of his observation post officers. After being away for about two hours, Cook and his two men came back, having found the 80mm blown up, with only the boots and of the Germans left. After being away for about two hours, Cook and his two men came back, having found the 88mm blown up, with only the boots and of the Germans left. They were in the usual condition of being half glad, half sorry not to have had more exciting times. However, they were flushed with cider and had mysteriously managed to buy a packet of French cigarettes without any particular trouble. This seemed much more remarkable afterwards than it did at the time when we hadn't met enough Frenchmen begging for cigarettes to realise how totally scarce they were. We settled down to lunch off tinned sausage, tinned biscuits, tinned butter and tinned tea. In the middle of the meal... Cook was called away and came back to say we were on a job of protecting an SP gun regiment on its way to some high ground. I took a little rapid tuition in how to work my Browning machine gun. It seemed an idyllically elementary form of gunnery, his lack of precision admirably suited to my own. The gun had a limited field of traverse and elevation. Any target would have to be either crossing the path or suicidally advancing on us. It was then simply a question of hose-piping the target with bullets starting on the ground in front of the target and working upwards. There was a cable drum at my feet. "'Will be enough wire, sir?' asked Cook. Having no intention of using any wire at all, I said that it seemed admirable. It turned out that he thought I was an observation post officer and that I was to jump out of the tank when it couldn't advance any further without being seen by the enemy and establish an observation post for artillery. I quickly disillusioned him. We set out at 2.40pm and ten minutes later drew into a field of crops. The SP guns mounted on Sherman tank chassis were deployed all over the field. 
Our tank and three others with the same job were lined up on the right flank, looking across a field filled with some extraordinary vegetable plant or tree about six feet high. We got out to look round, and a shot was fired apparently at us. We no sooner had bolted back into the tank than another one came. There were evidently snipers. The order came to stay in the tank all the time and keep our eyes skinned for shots. We're at 892-733. The enemy are in the corner of that wood over there, said Cook. I hope they can't see us, said someone else. Hello, Cookie. Good news, said Hogg. That wood's clear of the enemy, but the snipers. Snipers? I say again, keep your head down, said Cook. Not half, I won't, said Cherry. The SP guns, which were parked all round us, shelled over the woods in front of us. We were turned off the road between Saint-Léger and Saint-Croix-Grand-Ton. The land on either side off which we were turned was very flat, but it dipped down towards the woods over which the guns were firing. After two hours, we decided to brew up, but as the cooking was starting, the order came to prepare to move. The infantry prepared to follow us in to clear snipers out of the area. During the morning, they had killed or rounded up about 40, but there were still plenty more in the immediate neighbourhood. The column of SP guns moved laboriously across the fields and along some tracks. We were supposed to be covering them, Indeed, I suppose we were covering them, but the only side of the enemy was one little shot. Corporal Cook, are we supposed to be covering the right flank? asked Hogg, the operator. Why? Because we can't at the moment. Nothing on the right flank at the moment, said Cook. All right, stand at ease, said Hogg. The country opened out a good deal on the other side of the wood. There was an irregular shallow basin, across the bottom of which we went, leading up to a feature called Point 103. We turned off to the left just before approaching this and parked along the hedges of a field, while the SP guns started shelling a pass. Those SP guns were always shelling someone or something. Corporal Cook went off to look around a bit and came back having found a comfortable-looking farm about a 100 yards away. He was an ingenious young man and it didn't take him long to persuade that it would be a shrewd tactical move to have our tank cover the area of this farmhouse. So presently we moved across an orchard through two hedges onto a patch of grass outside the farm, where we prepared for a comfortably secluded afternoon. There were, in fact, two farms. The one outside, which we were parked, seemed to be empty, but Cook and I found the family at home in the adjoining farm. There were an old man, an even older and much more quavering woman, a little boy, and the little boy's mother, who was obviously the administrative brains of the place. They sat around their kitchen table, listening in varying degrees of apprehension, from the shivering terror of the old woman to the excitement of the little boy, while the shells poured overhead in both directions. They said that they hadn't slept for the past four nights because of the bombardment. So far, they had escaped substantial damage, although the buildings were chewed up in places. They said that the Germans had been very correct up to the moment of departure, when they stole some bread and anything else they could find. The theft of the bread was much more serious than it might seem, because of the shortage of it. They gave us each a glass of some very rough, sour local cider. We watched them eat their meal, which looked about as disastrously unappetising as other people's meals usually do. They were very anxious to know how the battle was going, which of course we didn't really know ourselves. I said that the Germans were being forced back quickly, because obviously that was the only thing they could stand hearing at the moment. Meanwhile, the Germans busily shelled and mortared the neighbourhood. I got tired of trying to talk French after a bit and went back to the tank where I ate some more of our endless supplies of sweets and chocolate. Things quietened down except for occasional mysterious bouts of automatic fire. Then alarmingly two pistol shots were fired a few yards away 
Cherry, the driver, fired his sten gun at a tree which he declared was moving. I took another man and cautiously edged along into the farmyard, where we found that Cook had shot and wounded. I took another man and cautiously edged along into the farmyard, where we found that Cook had shot a wounded calf at the request of the farmer. The farmer and his family set about the business of butchering the carcass, though the shells were still whistling overhead in both directions. The French achieve a remarkable degree of detachment. When everyone else is crouching and doubling, the Frenchman walks calmly up the road, sublimely confident of immunity. About tea time, a full-scale battle started up some hundreds of yards away. Terrific machine gun fire and mortar fire and heavy shelling. Shrapnel started showering in our garden. A trickle of miserable-looking French people came walking back. With much crouching and doubling across gaps, Cook and I made our way along a lane in the direction of the firing. We reached a farmhouse overlooking the arena and searched it for a suitable window. We couldn't find one which showed us a thing. There was, however, a mirror in which I caught sight of myself advancing, pistol in hand and ferocious in mien. Adapting the words, I believe, of the Duke of Wellington, I might not have frightened the enemy, but I damn well frightened myself. The farmhouse was abandoned while the battle went on, so I took the liberty of looking around. It seemed surprisingly well off for nearly everything. On the food side, of course, this wasn't surprising on a farm, but they had plenty of all kinds of manufactured stuff. Matches, cigars, wines. There was an undramatic normality about the apparent standard of living. The women's hats and clothes, the patent medicines, the fancy notepaper, the children's school books were all very comfortable. More than could be said for the uncarpeted stone floors of the bedrooms and the uncurvingly right-angled chairs. The only living occupants were a turkey. The only living occupants were a turkey and young in the scullery. I stood and watched the infantry going down to the battle. They looked pathetically unanxious to get there, and certainly the busy and delighted sounding rat-a-tat of the machine guns was not inviting. I followed them down the lane through a system of orchards and meadows to a gateway, from which there was a pretty fair view of the battle. The infantry, who had had sharp losses during the day, were digging in for the night. Some were lying in the ditch cooking food. It made our life in the tank seem unfairly sybaritic. Over in the next field, a German tank was burning, its exploding ammunition making a gruesome display. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. 
I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 